Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. The topic for this podcast is, has the final curtain fallen on the Jersey Boys' legal woes? The Jersey Boys was by far my favorite Broadway musical. Um, I was deeply saddened when the final curtain fell on the show as I had or as I had gone to see it uh, twice and uh, was planning on seeing it for a third time. For those who are unfamiliar with the Jersey Boys, it was a 2005 jukebox musical with music by the great Bob Gaudio and the book, which was written by Marshall Brickman and Rick Elise. It's presented in a documentary-style format that dramatizes the formation, success, and sad uh, breakup of the 1960s rock and roll group, The Four Seasons. What I love so much about the musical is how creative it was in the way it was directed. It was structured as four seasons, each narrated by a different member of the band who gave their own perspective on its history and music. The other thing that I found so interesting about the play is that many, including myself that went to see it, didn't realize how many of the songs uh, that were played, that were timeless classics, were actually sung by the group The Four Seasons. I think that, um, you know, that came as a shock to me. I just didn't know that they had put out hit after hit after hit. And so some of the more popular songs that were included in the musical included Big Girls Don't Cry, Sherry, December 1963, or Oh What a Night, My Eyes Adored You, Stay, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, Working My Way Back to You, and Ragdoll. The title, Jersey Boys, refers to the fact that the members of the Four Seasons are from New Jersey and are all men. The musical ran on Broadway from 2005 to 2017, and since its debut has seen two North American national tours and productions in London's West End, Las Vegas, Chicago, Toronto, Singapore, South Africa, the Netherlands, and all other uh, corners of the world. The Jersey Boys won four 2006 Tony Awards, including Best Musical and the 2009 Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical. The play is basically a a behind-the-scenes story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. From the streets of New Jersey to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this was the musical that rocked the world. Now, as much as I would love to chat in this podcast about my favorite parts of the musical and, um, you know, the, uh, the parts of the play that really, um, you know, uh, touched me in an emotional place, um, I'm actually here to talk about the legal issues that surfaced during the running of the musical. And so there are two cases I want to talk to you about. The first case is called Sofa Entertainment versus Dodger, and it was a copyright infringement suit. In the case, the issue that was before the court was whether a portion of the Jersey Boys play or musical infringed on a copyright associated with the Ed Sullivan Show, the right to which are now owned by Sofa Entertainment. So in a lawsuit, there's a plaintiff and a defendant, and in this case, it's no different. Sofa was the plaintiff, 
and Dodger was the defendant. And so typically, a plaintiff brings a lawsuit when there is a cause of action or a claim um, that there is a legal basis for. Now, Sofa's claim here in their pleading was that Dodger infringed its copyright by using a seven-second clip of Ed Sullivan's introduction of the Four Seasons on The Ed Sullivan Show, and that they could not justify its unlicensed use of the strip as fair use. So that was the rub that Sofa had, the fact that Dodger um, allegedly infringed its copyright by using this seven-second clip uh, from The Ed Sullivan Show. So let's uh, go a little bit deeper to talk about the video clip in question. It's a seven-second recording in which Ed Sullivan introduces the Four Seasons to American viewers. It was used in Dodger's musical about the Four Seasons' Jersey Boys to highlight a historical point in the band's career. In fact, uh, you might recall that scene um, as it came, I believe, in the first 15 to 20 minutes of the musical. So how did this dispute begin? What was the genesis of it? Well, um, it's not um, fancy in any way, shape, or form. It began when the founder of Sofa attended a performance of the Jersey Boys and realized that the musical, without Sofa's permission, used the clip. So uh, here you can imagine, you know, this, uh, the founder of Sofa, you know, sitting in the theater, um, you know, uh, uh, ready to watch the Jersey Boys, perhaps after just uh, leaving Carmine's um, Italian restaurant in um, you know, in a theater district, ready to uh, watch the Jersey Boys, and then, much to his surprise, he sees this clip from the Ed Sullivan Show. So, what happens? Sofa sues the producers of Jersey Boys, Dodgers Production and Dodger Theatricals, which is collectively uh, named Dodger for copyright infringement. Dodger's defense, and they did have one, was that the use of that seven-second clip constituted fair use. And as is the normal course in a civil lawsuit, um, the defendant typically moves for dismissal by filing a motion for summary judgment. And that's exactly what Dodger did here. Now, let's take a short digression into fair use, since that was the defense that Dodger raised. Fair use is a legal doctrine that permits unlicensed but limited use of copyright-protected works. There are four factors that a court has to consider in determining fair use. And without getting too technical here, I am going to list the four factors for you just so that you can appreciate how the court um, analyzed uh, the facts of the case and how they applied the facts to these four factors. So the first factor for determining fair use is the purpose and character of the use. The second factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. The third factor is the amount and substantiality of the portion used. And the fourth factor is the extent to which the use harms existing or future market for the original work. So with this framework, with these four factors, the district court applied the facts and they came to a conclusion or what we as lawyers call a holding. 
the district court held that the use of the seven-second clip constituted fair use, which means that they sided in favor of Dodger because Dodger's defense was that the use of the clip constituted fair use. And not only did they find, the court that is, that the seven-second clip constituted fair use, but they went so far as to award Dodger attorney fees. So in defending the lawsuit, Dodger had to hire uh, lawyers. And the lawyers, of course, know how to bill. Um, and if you ask um, people who have had experience with lawyers, overbill. Uh, and this may not have been any exception as the lawyers for Dodge, representing Dodger uh, billed to the tune of six figures. So the court um, actually awarded Dodger attorney fees, including or, or, or awarded Dodger attorney fees, finding SOFA's infringement claim unreasonable. So there is a separate threshold that the defense has to meet in order to have their attorney fees um, uh, paid for by the other side, and that's that the claim that was brought against them by the plaintiff was unreasonable. The court justified the award on the basis that it would deter future lawsuits that might otherwise, quote, chill the creative endeavors of others, end quote. Now, if you're SOFA or you're the plaintiff um, in a case like this, you're not going to be too happy because not only has a district court slapped you down um, and found in favor of the defense, but they've also now forced you to pay the attorney fees that the defendant accrued during the course of the litigation. So what does an aggrieved uh, or bitter plaintiff do? They typically appeal the decision, and in this case it was no different. SOFA appealed the decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Ninth Circuit, it encompasses uh, California, um, I believe uh, parts of Nevada as well, and perhaps even as far north as uh, Oregon. Um, so that's uh, essentially, those states um, essentially uh, consist of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Unfortunately for SOFA, they didn't fare much better as the Ninth Circuit agreed with the district court and affirmed the lower court's decision holding that Dodger's use of the clip was fair use. The court found that all four factors militated in favor of Dodger. And here's how they reason their way through it. And that's why I mentioned the four factors because I think it's fascinating how the courts apply the facts to the law and come to a conclusion. With respect to the first factor, the Ninth Circuit emphasized the fact that Dodger used the clip for its biographical significance demonstrating that the Four Seasons had enduring prominence in American music. So if you remember the first factor, that was the purpose and character of the use. And here, the Ninth Circuit found that Dodger used the clip for its biographical significance. Um, the court reasoned that this use created a wholly new transformative work. Essentially, what they were saying is that Dodger imbued it with new meaning and did so without usurping, taking away whatever demand there was for the original clip. So what about the remaining factors? We still have um, the second factor, nature of the copyrighted work. 
The third factor, the amount and substantiality of the portion used. And the fourth factor, the extent to which the use harms the existing or future market for the original work. So for these remaining factors, the court determined that the nature, and that's the key word here, nature, so you know that they are referring to the second factor. The court determined that the nature of the copyright was factual, that Dodger used a small portion of the copyrighted work that goes to the amount and substantiality of the portion used, which is factor three, and finally, that its use did not disrupt the market for derivative works of the Ed Sullivan Show. And that satisfies the fourth factor, the extent to which the use harms the existing or future market for the original work. The fourth factor goes to the economic harm, uh, foreseeable harm, and existing harm that could have been caused by um, the use of that clip. But again, the court held that with respect to that fourth prong, its use did not disrupt the market for derivative works of the Ed Sullivan Show. The court ruled in favor of, of Dodger on its fair use defense and did nothing to disturb the award of attorney fees granted by the district court. Essentially, they said that the plaintiff was still on the hook for paying Dodger's attorney fees. The court even went so far as to say, quote, this case is a good example of why the fair use doctrine exists. Now moving on to the second case. Yes, there is yet another case involving the Jersey Boys, and that case is called Corbello versus DeVito. Corbello versus DeVito deals with an unpublished autobiography of band member Tommy DeVito which was co-authored by DeVito and journalist Rex Woodward. So here's a little bit of background information. DeVito and Woodward worked on the manuscript together from 1988 to 1991 when Woodward passed away unexpectedly. Now, Woodward uh, left uh, his wife. So his wife uh, was his surviving, uh, was a surviving spouse. Her name is Donna Corbello. And Donna sought to publish the manuscript on the eve of the Jersey Boys' Broadway debut. Um, it was uh, speculated that she hoped that the renewed interest in the group would promote sales. Now, as one can imagine, uh, when Corbello went to the U.S. Copyright Office and learned that DeVito had already registered the work with the U.S. Copyright Office, um, she was flat out surprised. Um, she was not in any way expecting it. Um, and the real rub that Donna had was that in registering the work, DeVito left Woodward out completely, not giving him any attribution for his involvement. And keep in mind that DeVito um, had worked with journalist Rex Woodward to um, co-author the um, unpublished autobiography of um, band member Tommy DeVito. So Corbello was hurt in, um, in more than one way. She was hurt by learning that uh, DeVito, DeVito had gone beyond, uh, had uh, gone beyond, behind rather, uh, her back to register the work with the U.S. Copyright Office and that he had then 
left Woodward out completely uh, when um, when Woodward had contributed um, to the autobiography of band member Tommy DeVito and that he didn't give him any attribution for his involvement. So what happened here? Well, Corbello sued DeVito and demanded an accounting of profits from the autobiography. She claimed to have standing to bring the lawsuit, and I'm going to back up for a second. Standing means basically the right to bring a lawsuit. Um, the, the, the person has to have uh, what's called standing to bring a lawsuit, and essentially there are you know uh, legal uh, issues uh, that um, determine whether a person has standing. But to distill this into its simplest terms, um, in this case, Corbello was able to bring the lawsuit on behalf of her late husband, uh, Rex Woodward, um, because she essentially um, was um, uh, she was essentially she had inherited um, her late husband's rights as a co-author. So she sued DeVito and demanded an accounting of profits from the autobiography and had claimed standing to bring the lawsuit on the grounds that she inherited Woodward's rights as a co-author. And again, uh, Woodward was her late husband. So in the beginning stage of a case, we have what's called discovery. And discovery is where both sides exchange information um, to one another. It's required by the court. Um, so to the extent that the information is uh, relevant to the uh, plaintiff's cause of action, it has to be turned over by the defense. Uh, typically what the plaintiff will do is uh, memorialize what it's looking for in its pleadings and demand these items. In the case where the defendant um, decides uh, or feels that it's not relevant and, it and it's not discoverable or it's not something that they are obliged to turn over, um, that would become an issue for the judge to decide. And in some cases, the judge uh, will issue an order uh, ordering the defense to turn over uh, the issue or what's called compel um, the issuance of the discovery. So during the discovery stage, a lot is um, a lot of things are uncovered, and I'm sure everyone has heard of the expression "the smoking gun." Um, in some cases, during the discovery phase of a case, that's when a smoking gun uh, comes out that uh, almost or that practically seals a case in favor of one side usually in favor of uh, the plaintiff. But during the discovery stage of the case, Corbello learned that DeVito had given the manuscript to several others involved in the production of Jersey Boys. So what does she do? She expands the scope of her lawsuit to allege that the Broadway production was based on the manuscript and then adds additional parties as defendants to the lawsuit. And those additional parties included Dodger, the writers and producers of the show, and band members Frankie Valli and Bob Gaudio. Generally speaking, the more defendants that are involved and um, ensconced in litigation, um, the better uh, the better it is for a plaintiff because there are more uh, potential parties that um, you know that could potentially pay 
a, um, you know, a verdict or potentially, um, you know, um, engage in settlement discussions. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that there is um, a basis for um, expanding the scope of a lawsuit and bringing in other um, tort feasors, then the plaintiff's attorney's job is to, um, is to actually serve them and to bring them into the lawsuit. Now, in this case of Corbello versus DeVito, there were two issues for the court to decide. The first dealt with the definition of biography. In 1999, DeVito had granted to Valley and Gaudio, via a written agreement, the rights to his biography for use in a theatrical performance. To the extent that the term biography included the specific autobiographical manuscript prepared by DeVito and Woodward, then Corbello had standing to demand an accounting of the profits from that agreement. In 2011, the Ninth Circuit held that the definition of biography included the unpublished autobiography. So they essentially, um, they essentially Um, said that Corbello won on the first issue. The court relied on the everyday definition of biography as a history of a person's life that is usually written. And as a result, DeVito owed Corbello some of the profits from the written agreement. The second issue that the court had to decide was whether the play infringed on the manuscript. And actually, um, that issue, however, um, was not so easily disposed of, even though the court had already ruled on the written contract. And there was a wrinkle. Although the contract's assignment of rights was valid in 99, it contained a clause that caused the rights granted to revert back to the manuscript's authors if they were not exercised within a designated period of time. Here, the court reasoned that Valley and, Valley and Gaudio didn't hire a producer for the show until 2005, and that this extended timeline or procrastination, call it what you want, may have triggered the reversionary clause. What does this mean? Well, at the end of the day, this meant that any subsequent use of the work, meaning the writing um, of the Jersey Boys script, may have infringed the copyright in the manuscript despite the written agreement. As a result, the Ninth Circuit remanded, which is just a fancy word of saying sent back to the district court, the question of infringement for further hearings. So the Ninth Circuit made a ruling in determining that um, any subsequent use of the work may have infringed the copyright in the manuscript. However, they didn't say whether it did or it didn't. Instead, they sent that issue back down to the district court so that it could be decided in a trial by a jury. And uh, the jury, in this case, uh, would be the fact finders to determine the question of infringement. So the infringement case was heard over the course of a month in the Nevada district court. During the trial, the court dismissed the claims against Valley and Gaudio, so they could breathe a sigh of relief as they no longer were litigants to this um, trial. And they, the, the, the court based its dismissal 
of the claims against Valley and Gordio on the grounds that there wasn't a scrap of evidence that either one saw the unpublished autobiography prior to the litigation. Now, how about Dodger and the remaining defendants? Unfortunately, they were not as lucky as Valley and, Valley and Gordio were. In, instead, they remained in the case as defendants, and the trial proceeded against them. So the first issue uh, that we have to uh, decide is what, or the first uh, thing that we all want to know is what were the arguments that the defendants made. They argued that despite, despite acknowledging receipt of the unpublished work, the writers and director of the play used it for research purposes only and that they didn't use it for any other purpose. Additionally, the defendants argued that many of the alleged similarities between the manuscript and the play were historical facts. This argument has legal significance, and that's because historical facts are not subject to copyright. So what the defendants were saying is that uh, there was no harm, no foul here because the alleged similarities between the manuscript and the play were historical facts. They were, you know, just benign and innocuous um, historical facts that came out of this um, sordid affair. And because they were historical facts, they're not subject to any copyright that anybody could sue them over. So whether the play infringed on the manuscript was an issue for the jury to decide. And they did decide. After deliberating for a few days, they returned a verdict in favor of Corbello, finding that the defendants directly infringed upon her late husband's work. The jury also found that the defendants' infringement contributed to 10% of the show's success. Now, here's the linchpin. Uh, whether Corbello was entitled to damages in the amount of 10% of the Jersey Boys' profits um, is a story for another day. So um, the fact that the jury found that the defendant's infringement contributed to 10% of the show's success does not automatically translate into Corbello uh, receiving damages in the amount of 10% of Jersey Boys' profits. I mean, one can only imagine what a staggering amount that would be. However, um, this did uh, deal the defendants a um, a uh, a very hard blow, and so at the end of the day here, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see whether this saga will continue, and if so, whether Corbello uh, decides to go back to court and to um, and to force this issue of being entitled to damages in the amount of 10% of the show's success. So while the final curtain may have fallen on the Jersey Boys show, it may not yet have fallen on the next chapter of this lawsuit. Um, again, I guess we're going to just have to see how this saga will continue, and if so, whether it's coming to a courtroom near you.